And welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Uh, how you doing? I'm good. I think uh, now that it's April, all that glitter has probably finally exited my system from our last podcast. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Uh, you're right. It might not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, that's not what I meant. Uh, how you doing? Hey, all is well uh, with me. That's good. Spring is here. Uh, you are Jeff Allworth. You are the author of Secrets of Master Brewers. You're the author of the Beer Bible and the author of Cider Made Simple. Wow. All those things. Where do you find the time? And you know, I'm also the author of an unnamed biography of Robin Kurt Widmer, which is going to be published by Ooligan Press. Nice. Do you uh, about when? Uh, like a year from now. Publishing takes forever. Okay. But it's off to the publisher. Not yeah. Not too soon to start promoting though. That's right. Everybody <laughs> so, get excited. Yeah. <laughs> Put your pre-orders in now. <laughs> uh, you also blog at Beervana. That's right. And you are uh, Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University. And you blog. Uh, pa- uh, you don't blog. You don't pod. You tweet. I do. Wow. I don't pod. That was. Well, that I mean, you don't. You don't. You don't. Cold. You don't pod at Beeronomics. You tweet at Beeronomics. I tweet. At I'm fumbling here. Yeah, that was uh, true. But I do. No, no slight intended. When you promote our pod, I often retweet it. On That's Beeronomics. good. That's <laughs> fantastic. That's I'm pretty good at this social media stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact. Um, uh, in my capacity of as economist at Oregon State University, um, I get to uh, do two things, but talk about economics and uh, talk about beer. And so today, we're going to talk about both at the same time. That's right. We have uh, a very special beeronomics issue today. Uh, we are our res- resident beeronomics expert. That's you. We'll discuss uh, insights into behavioral economics and how they might be applied to beer. How do we choose the beer we drink? That's right. I call this behavioral beeronomics. Exactly. Behavioral beeronomics. I even wrote that on the script. <laughs> so the, beha- the, Mind beha- melt. the behavioral revolution in economics has been uh, insights from psychology uh, that we have incorporated into economics to relax the assumption of the strict rational decision maker. Uh, and I thought it would be fun to think about the insights that they give us and how that might apply to beer. Well, you have somebody who's very irrational here, so that will help out. That will prove your point. <laughs> Good, because <laughs> we can't explain you. <laughs> Nobody has been able to. All right. <clears throat> but, but first, the news. There is currently an enormous glut of hops sitting unsold in warehouses of the Pacific Northwest. The current inventory held by growers, hop merchants, and brewers is 169 million pounds. Whoa. Uh, yeah, which is uh, 40% higher than the previous uh, high amount of hops, uh, which followed the hop shortage of 2008. Uh, the oversupply comes because growers and merchants were over-optimistic about the future of craft beer growth, which they shared with the breweries themselves, mm-hmm. uh, and that, of course, has slowed down considerably in the last two years. Uh, yeah, so how long? Uh, it takes a couple of years, right, for a hop uh, bind to really start producing. Right. So you have to, you have to be two years out. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a, if you're brewing or growing a, a crop, that you're familiar with, if you're trying to develop a new crop, one of these X nine forty threes can be ten years. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot of overhead, and I think it's something like twenty thousand dollars an acre to put the trellises up and all that stuff. Wow! So it's a it's a big investment, um, and then 
um, this article that I read the, where the news was announced, which is called the Capital Press, which is an ag press. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talked about how expensive it is to sit on hops, too, because you have to the when they're just sitting in warehouses, there's a lot of expense. Yeah, so. of course. And I wonder uh, if it if well, I was about to say, I wonder if the, the there's there are many more uh, German style and Czech Pilsners and Helles and other light beers that are being brewed in, by craft beer now, and I wonder if that's also part of it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's a uh, a shifting market. You're right. Away from three years ago, everybody was crazy, absolutely crazy for IPAs and yeah. only IPAs. Well, that hasn't really that hasn't really subsided, but uh, m- some of the growth, I would say, has been redirected into some of those lighter beers, perhaps. Yeah, I think you're right. So, uh, next. Uh, news item is that the Brewers Association, which oversees the Great American Beer Festival, the GABF, has added three new categories to its style guidelines. And I'll give you three guesses what the three are. <laughs> so the first is juicy or hazy pale ale. The second is juicy or hazy IPA. And the third is juicy or hazy Double IPA. Yay. <laughs> this is a response to both market trends and also a surge of beer entries in re- recent events that didn't fit existing categories. Right. Yeah, Everybody's I, making these and they can't enter them. So. Right. Yeah. And so you've got to make a whole bunch of different places they can go. Uh, interesting that they chose to do Juicy or Hazy and, and, and uh, forego the regional tag of uh, New England style or Northeast. I've been fascinated to see that, too. It, the, it, it's it, uh, hazy IPA has really replaced New England IPA, mm-hmm. and it's a lot better term. Yes. but it's really screwing New England out of there. because <laughs> so, everybody still talks out about of their beery heritage. That's right. Everybody still talks about West Coast IPAs, but New England got like two years before they were thrown <laughs> to the curb. They got co-opted too fast. They got adopted too fast. <laughs> Sorry, Boston. Yeah, I don't think juice. I don't like the term juicy because juicy can be anything. Uh, I like hazy because hazy gives you, well, now I'm saying that I'm kind of debating in my own mind because it's really the hazy and the juicy together. Well, hazy IPAs are always juicy, but yeah. juicy IPAs are not always, always hazy. hazy. Yeah, that was, that was what I was thinking. Yeah. Uh, so my, my preference is for hazy, and actually I think I see that more than anything else these days. Yeah, I do too. I, I want to, and perhaps you and I can talk about this, uh, uh, but I would like to homebrew a beautifully clear just maybe a tiny bit of shimmer juicy like intensely juicy uh, ipa the same flavor profile but a different visual effect and and maybe a slight a tiny tiny dial up on the bitterness just because i think i get better balance there but but lacking none of the juiciness just all the juiciness none of the haze and maybe a tiny bit. all right well you're the expert you can you can do it it took us a long time to to learn how to to hop where well, are we? It's taken us a long time to learn how to do everything. So, and, and many would argue it's, we're still learning That's how to right. brew, <laughs> <laughs> including the people who've actually drunk our beers. <laughs> Nevertheless, but I, remember, but I remember it was my white whale is to get a really strong uh, citrusy profile out of my IPA, and for years I didn't know how to do it. And then finally, all of these late edition and cool side hops came in, and I finally figured out, ah, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. So, so. Uh, shall we talk about uh, behavioral economics? Yes, everyone get out, get out your textbooks. So, you know, I, I <laughs> was listening session. just today. I was listening to a podcast uh, on the Hidden Brain where uh, uh, Shankar Vedantam, 
for those who listen to NPR, you'll recognize the name, yep. was interviewing uh, Daniel Kahneman. There you go. And he's, I, I guess, a guy that Dan- is relevant to this discussion. Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky are two psychologists that are widely credited, and, and they won the Nobel Prize in economics for bringing uh, insights from psychology into economics. Um, Richard Thaler at the University of Chicago has also been a big uh, uh, name involved in behavioral economics. He was an e- economist who really adopted the the psychological insights and, and started to build them into models. Uh, and now behavioral economics is is one of the fastest growing fields in economics and now is a full-blown and fully respected field in economics, which it wasn't always because uh, economics foundation is in the rational decision maker uh, model. So um, many people misinterpret that as uh, uh uh, selfishness. It's not really selfishness. It's just self-interested. So you want to you want to do what makes you happy, and things like charitable giving can make you happy, or making other people happy can make you happy. But you do so in a very systematic and rational way. And we always assume that people behave in these systematic and rational ways, which is usually a pretty good uh, description of mass behavior, not a particularly good description of any one individual behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are lots of areas in which people start doing things that don't make sense uh, in a rational framework. And so uh, I wanted to talk about some of the behavioral economics insights. There are very many, and I'll just talk about a few that I think are potentially relevant uh, to beer. And that's a way that we'll both learn a little bit about behavioral economics and perhaps learn a little about how people choose the beers they drink. Very cool. (laughs) So there you go. That's my intro. Okay. So as I mentioned, I'm not about to do an omnibus uh, lecture on all of behavioral economics. We we teach entire semester-long classes on behavioral economics. But here are a few things that I think are are, are relevant uh, to the beer market. Uh, The first uh, insight, behavioral insight into economics, is what we call prospect theory. And this is really where uh, we... This This was their big thing, right? Uh, yeah, so you listened that, that far, huh? Yeah, I listened that far. <laughs> By the way, there's a, uh, a book, uh, it's called, I think, The Undoing Project. Uh, I think that's right, uh, by Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball and right. uh, uh, other uh, books about Tversky and Kahneman, um, which is supposed to be very good. I haven't read it, but uh, if you're interested, that's a good place to start, I think. We're about to, we're about to plunge into the only thing I know here, so, <laughs> so I'll, I'll nod knowingly through this section, and then I'll, I'll give you the glazed stare. So prospect theory is really about how we, uh, we really dislike losses more than we like wins. We want to avoid loss. Um, and so a classic example of this is if you give someone the chance uh, to um, uh, win, uh, 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 sorry, to, to get $50 for certain or win a 50% chance of $100, we'll almost always uh, take the $50 uh, for certain because people are t- tend to be risk averse. Easy money. Uh, yeah, certain money. Right. So gam- we tend to not like gambles unless it's for entertainment, and that's something else. Now, uh, before they came up with this theory, would, would classical economics have suggested that people would have taken the bet? They would, well, or- no, this is, this is classical. So this is just risk avoidance, and okay. that's fine. The, 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 the converse, though, the, the risk avoidance is that if you're going to uh, um, lose $50 for certain, or have a gamble of losing nothing for a fifty percent chance of losing nothing, or fifty percent chance of losing a hundred. You'll take the gamble, ah. uh, right? Because the, the the psychological impact of a certain loss is really high. 
Interesting. Um, so we tend to really like uh, we tend to really try to avoid uh, losses. Um, and how I was thinking about this in terms of beer is that this could also lead potentially people not gambling on unknown beers or unknown brewers. Uh, we don't want to take a, a loss. Um, it's probably more salient for packaged products because often in a bar you can try. Uh, and it might be more about brands than beers. So a new brewery uh, might have a hard time uh, overcoming this sort of loss avoidance behavior. And one way you can get around it potentially, one of the actions suggests maybe is doing samples or beer tasting events, mm -hmm. uh, getting your, your beer out there so that people aren't uh, afraid of wasting uh, money on on an unknown beer. So w one thing about beer that's different from, say, wine mm -hmm. uh, is it's cheap. So yep. is there a threshold in this theory? Like, do people consider f losing five dollars? Uh, are, are they less worried about losing five dollars than losing fifty dollars? Or uh, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a larger psychological impact from from bigger losses. But uh, in in laboratory experiments, we see this behavior even in small in small increments. How much this really matters uh, to beer, obviously, is a question. I'm I'm just making these sort of uh, logical leaps. Right. Uh, it's interesting because we've just gone through this period of great promiscuity. And so uh, it's interesting to think about how that all works with that. Yeah. But here's the thing. A lot of the promiscuity, I think, is, is about buzz and word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you're just faced with an unknown brewer and, you know, there's a $10 bottle of beer there, uh, you might be uh, you have sort of two potential instincts, and we'll talk about some of these other instincts as we go along. But one is that you're curious and, and want to try and want to always try new things. That's one of the things that we uh, consider sort of normal rational behavior. Um, but then the other is that you might want to avoid wasting 10 bucks on something that you don't know. And this is, we, right. we've mentioned this in terms of regular economics, that since it's what we call an experience good, you don't know how much you're going to like it until you actually purchase it, open it, and ingest it. Right. Um, uh, that you uh, have this issue. If you could, if you knew how much you were going to like it before you started, it wouldn't have that problem. Um, which actually leads us right into the next one, which is this um, uh, what we call diversification bias. Um, and this is there's sort of two counter trends here because we also have this thing called the paradox of choice. So diversification bias is that we tend to want to diversify even when it makes us less happy. And this is the idea here is something along the lines of. You go to your favorite restaurant, you know they serve this meal that you love, but you know the special of the day's there and you're curious and you think you should try it, you should probably uh, diversify, you should be open to new experiences, and then so you order it and it's not nearly as good as the thing you like. And so we, we tend to, to be biased towards new experiences even when, we, uh, uh, when it makes us less, uh, less happy. Yeah, so that seems to contradict the other thing. So how do you reconcile those two? Yeah, so there's lots of weird things. So this is the problem with behavioral <laughs> economics, right? Uh -huh. Which is, it, there's, it's hard to reconcile all this stuff. And it's also sometimes hard to, to, to put this into a rational decision-maker framework because there are a lot of these weird behaviors that we see. Um, because the other thing is the paradox of choice. We often tend to be unhappy when there's too much choice uh, because it just takes a lot of mental effort to try and choose among too many options. Right. Totally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, um, the one experience I had with this was, uh, 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 at a conference, I think there was a conference hotel and in the, the, the in the hotel was a cheesecake factory restaurant, mm -hmm. which if you've never been there, uh, they serve just about any type of food you want. And the menu is about 86 pages long. And <laughs> I was thinking about that there, but you can think about that in terms of, of beer, um, which is 
uh, there's a real tendency to try to have lots and lots and lots of beers for everybody's taste. You want and all these kinds of new beers, but you might actually be not necessarily doing a good thing in terms of reaching your consumers and making your consumers happy if you have too many out there, too many choices. Interesting. Uh, maybe think of Rubens Brews was the place I could think of most off the top of my head that had this amazing beer list. Maybe thirty six beers, literally something along those lines. Yeah, they had all. It's true there. So, uh, so you have these two uh, uh, competing trends. Um, one is that we tend to want to be a little bit promiscuous, but sometimes too many choices make us unhappy. So we like a container in which our promiscuity can happen, maybe. Uh, yeah. Because as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, actually, I'm sort of like this. I, there's a bunch of breweries that I know and trust, and within... You know, if, if, like, see, if I see a brewery that I like and it's a beer I haven't had, I'm more likely to try that than a random beer from a brewery I don't know. That's right. Yeah, so because it's, it's like a little risk, but not too much. Exactly. Risk. Precisely. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, okay. So the next behavioral economics insight uh, is what uh, sometimes is called uh, mental accounting. And there's sort of two, two strands of this that I'll talk about. One is is the fact that value is sort of relative and not really absolute. So how much I value a beer might depend on how much other people value it yeah. or context. Yeah, this is a big one in beer too. Yeah. I think about this one a lot. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk about this. In, but, and then the other part of the mental accounting is that we don't treat all money the same way. Hmm. And a good example of this is suppose that you just randomly won 50 bucks. Uh, you know, you're walking down the street, you win a lottery, I don't know. So someone gives you 50 bucks. You tend to treat that as sort of windfall. So you come right. home and say, hey, let's go out to dinner tonight. I got 50 bucks. Let's go have right. fun. Uh, if you won $5,000, suddenly your whole attitude towards that money often changes. And you think, okay, this is a big wad of money. We need to invest this. We need to hold on to this money. This is wealth. It's not It's not just uh, uh, fungible income. Right. So uh, there's sort of... A, that is how I think, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> so uh, uh, so the first strand was what you were talking about, which is, um, I think, sort of it beers, for example, buzz beers. Um, you, you tend to pretend, uh, perhaps value them more uh, because uh, of their relative value rather than just the absolute joy it, 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 it gives you from, from drinking it. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, Oh, yeah. And then the other part about um, uh, mental accounting is context. And so this is where actually I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start finally tasting some beer. Okay. Uh, because, in fact, we were at the store together. And uh, there's two parts of, of context in, in pricing. Uh, actually, we can really say three things. But in terms of mental accounting, there's really two, two parts. One is that we tend to... Uh, devalue purchases that are in the context of bigger purchases. And so the credit card example is a perfect example of this. If I have to pull out $7 in cash and pay for a beer uh, now, that's much more relevant to me. It seems much more real than if I pull out my credit card and in the end of the month, I, there's still that $7 charge there, but it's in the context of a bunch of other purchases and maybe like a $400 credit card bill or something like that. And right. so it becomes diminished. So 7 bucks doesn't seem like very so much. So 7 bucks doesn't seem like much. And this is also, I think, true, although I don't actually see this. As, uh, it would seem that the, the natural result of this would be beers that you buy in restaurants or brew pubs uh, you could charge more for because they're in the context of a menu with a bunch of higher prices. And those prices can actually have a strong mental impact. 
And there was a great experiment. I'll tell you, this is not beer, but but it's a good experiment. So I'm going to tell you about this. Uh, is that um, students in a in a in a laboratory experiment were given um, a picture of a of a computer keyboard, and the price for that computer keyboard, as listed, was random. It was based on the last two digits of their social security number. Uh, is, I love these kinds of things. So it's completely random. So it could be anywhere from a dollar to or zero, I guess, to ninety-nine dollars, right? Okay. It's just two random digits. All they were asked, they weren't they weren't told anything about the price. It just happened to be there on the advertisement they were given. But then they were asked, how much is this keyboard worth to you? Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with the list price. And of course, those that had a much higher list price said that it was worth much more to them <laughs> than the lower list price. <clears throat> so uh, uh, there's a there's a whole bunch of things we do mentally when we start thinking about prices and value. Uh-huh. So a couple of things that I was looking for when we were in the beer store was beers that are in the context of higher price beers, uh, but that are uh, cheaper, can seem like a value potentially. And so one of the things we were looking at is a bunch of beers that were, I think it was Ballast Point was in the 250 per, this was a, a beer store, so they were selling individual cans. Well, they were 15 a six pack, so they were more than 250. Uh, 279. We were looking at the individual cans as well. I was, at least. Oh, sorry. Uh, so we found, uh, so a couple of things uh, that stood out to us. We found this uh, Firestone Walker 808, which yeah. is a buzz beer. Uh, not necessarily a buzz beer in Portland, but uh, kind of a buzz beer. But it was $1.99 uh, in the context of a bunch of two plus, two plus dollar beers. But within the Firestone Walker b- beers, it was the high price beer, $1.99. Yeah, it, it, it was a dime more than all the other ones. And it's presumably the cheapest one to make. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of these beers, Ballast Point, uh, I think we saw Georgetown from Seattle, they had uh, high price beers and then they had a cheaper beer and it was always the Pilsner or the Hellas or the, right. or the Kolsch. Um, so lighter beers, beers that are, are cheaper to produce. This one was was uh, higher price. So in <laughs> mental accounting, we do a number of things when we think about these. We often we often just like the keyboard example, I'll assess a higher value to this beer among the Firestone Walker beers because that's the higher price, regardless of of the beer itself. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so let's try it. Yeah, let's try uh, it because actually I've never tried it. Uh, and I've heard a lot about it. Oh, I've been calling it 808, 805. Yeah, sorry. I was going to mention it's actually 805, but that's all right. Everybody else knew it was 805. Yeah, <laughs> I, I wrote 808 down here on the thing. <laughs> uh, it's because I like Hawaiian food. 808 is Hawaii? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, there's, I think, uh, a couple of competing restaurants in Portland that call themselves 808. One is A-T-E-O-H-A-T-E. Oh, yeah, that's on Burnside, isn't it? And then one's something similar, so... Thinking too much about Hawaii, so the 805. My apologies to the good folks at Firestone Walker. So a couple of things I think if you're if if you're selling beer that come from this mental accounting, one is accept credit cards, right? Because people tend to purchase more when they can delay the the cost. Ah. It smells like beer. It smells like beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It doesn't really have. Uh, really distinct aroma. It's got a classic beery flavor or aroma. Yeah, I smell that. It's like hmm, some Pilsner malt maybe. Mm. And it's it's a gold, beautiful golden color, uh, perfectly clear. Oh, actually, you know, ain't nothing hazy about this. It's got a actually really nice uh, malt malt. Uh, it's very light, but it's it's kind of malt forward. It's got a a surprisingly 
I don't know they call it rustic, but a multi-profile. Anyway, try it. It smells like a lager to me. I think it's just it's a golden ale, right? Uh, I don't. It's eight oh five, man. What else you need to know? I don't even think about it except it's light. That's all I knew. Yeah, it's probably not going to say on here. So this is. It's probably not relevant to your discussion, but at some point, economically, I'd like to know. Many breweries now uh, really focus in on uh, styles mm-hmm. to describe things. And my sense is nobody, the, the vast majority of beer drinkers don't really know styles that much. Yeah. So it seems like a bad communication to me. Hmm. And 805 is, I think, on the complete other end of that. They're just, it's just 805. That's what it is. It's just a beer. It looks like a beer. It smells like a beer. It tastes like a beer. It, and they're, they don't worry about the beer, like, geek at all. Or uh, yeah. They don't talk about mosaic hops on here or anything else. But this might not have really been... Uh, I'm waiting for your. I'm, I'm trying to get the audio of your. Sorry, sl- you're slurping and gulping. It it, it, it m- does not taste like a lager, but it smells like one. Right, that's what I. That's why I'm. It's sort of surprising. Hmm. Um, it's a very simple beer, and this is the whole point of it. It's supposed to be a simple, easy. Yeah, and I think it kind of caught them by surprise. So I'm not sure the whole lot went into how they named it and, and marketed it, and probably they do now. Yeah, it, it was just one of those taproom beers that took off, and they. They ran with it. Yeah. I've, I've read about this beer. It's such a weird phenomenon in, in brewing. So anyway, to, to put a bow around the mental accounting bit, having a perception of an acclaimed beer is probably worth a lot in terms of the prices you can charge. Charging more for beers in the context of a brewer pub or a restaurant where prices are are high. Uh, uh, not that the price is high uh, uh, in general, but they have higher price items next to the beer. Uh, and then having uh, accepting things like credit cards. Um, by the way, this beer was a dollar ninety nine, and one of the puzzles in economics for a long time was why do we see products priced in nines, especially in Oregon where there's no sales tax. So ah, especially in Oregon weird. where there's no sales tax because it's just more annoying and more expensive, and really doesn't, uh, especially for retailers here who have to deal in pennies. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to because there's no right. there's no additional tax. Uh, so it's always been a, a puzzle in economics, and uh, this gets us into the discussion about heuristics, which is sort of how we figured out how people make decisions. So economists always modeled individuals as being these rational calculators, being able to make complicated uh, calculations in their minds, um, and figuring everything out uh, very precisely. But it turns out people don't make decisions like that at all. They make decisions using shortcuts or heuristics. Um, and one of the things that... Uh, people believe is that we tend to one of the shortcuts we make is we tend to focus on the first digits of prices prices before the decimal point and so if you see 7.99 even though rationally you understand that's eight dollars yeah essentially eight dollars your mind focuses on the seven and it must have a big impact because if it's an expensive thing to do to price in nines people wouldn't keep doing it totally so uh this beer was a dollar 99 uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is to say two bucks. Which is to say uh, two bucks. And at a small little beer store that really wouldn't otherwise necessarily uh, hew to a, a nat, you know, sort of a big corporate trend to price in nines. And yet yeah. they do. Right. Uh, and all their prices are in nines. They were. Yeah, 179, 159. Which is still a puzzle to me, by the way, because it's still a relative. You know, you're still, try- you're still thinking about these prices relatively. But I get it with 199. But psychologically, 199 is quite a bit different than $2. I don't understand the difference between why would you do 159. That seems like the value there is less uh, because, uh, you know, 
199 gets you in the $1 rather than the $2 category, but I don't know. Anyway, that's maybe that's just hidebound. People get into the nine, so they keep pricing things at the nines. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, sorry, one more one more taste of this. Uh, 805. 805. <laughs> uh, by the way, the whole idea of price. All, all of, our, sens- our Central Coast people were really irritated at you for getting their area code wrong. Yeah, I'm sorry, Central Coast folks. <laughs> Uh, that, okay, I won't go there. I was, was going to mention my foray into San Luis Obispo, but uh, anchoring, by the way, is what we call sort of this relative pricing is thinking of a price in the context of other prices. So one of the things you can do is you can uh, have a bunch of high price things around um, and then uh, that anchors people's mind and that your $9 pint is actually quite cheap, for mm-hmm. example, right? So you can play with perception uh, and pricing that way. Uh, so the next uh, thing, which actually gets us into the next beer, um, is the zero price effect. You know, people would attend your lectures more happily if you if I gave, applied them with beer beers. halfway through. <laughs> Ooh, another concept that'll get me into another beer. Uh, I did take the economics club one time to Rogue Brewery, where where the people of age had had beers, but I was the Does faculty member who who drove the van. Yeah, yeah. so I. I, not a dr- drop of alcohol touched my lips, which is a real shame. <laughs> but they had a good time. Uh, I think I've talked about this before. What really impressed me, and this was, this was 10 years ago, what really impressed me is that they all knew all these different rogue beers. Uh, they weren't just like me in college. I knew, you know, hams and maybe Rainier <laughs> pounders. Oh, you're aging yourself, dating yourself, I and am. me by implication because you're younger than I am. Yeah, I think you introduced me to both of those things. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, young college students are sophisticated craft beer connoisseurs. Yeah, it's amazing. There's a bunch of research into millennials and Gen Z. I guess they don't really have a good name for the next one. And, uh, yeah, they're so much more sophisticated. So so, uh, so the next beeronomics uh, concept is this idea of zero price. And it turns out that people tend to value free stuff uh, more than stuff you have to pay for. Wait, more or less? Uh, more. So, for, huh. exa- for example, um, there was one study where uh, people were given, I think this was like some kind of telecom, uh, maybe like a cell phone. Like if you, re-sign, if you sign up now... We'll give you, you know, 200 free hours of talk time or something. This is back in the day when you had to worry about how many hours. Uh, uh, versus saying we've we've already put 200 free hours on your on your account, and if you cancel this now, then of course you won't be able to use those, right? And so there was a much uh, higher success rate of getting people to re. Uh, re-up when they gave them already the 200 free hours. Huh. So it, there was essentially no difference in the deal, right? You, you read up and you got 200 free hours, but the way they presented it had a huge impact on the rates at which people re, uh, re-upped. Weird. Uh, and so this got me thinking, oh, Jeff, beer writer, <laughs> who daily gets deliveries to your doorstep, it's uh, you get a lot of free beer. I do. So let's drink a free beer All because right. it's worth much more. It's worth more than when we paid for. Well, you're gonna you're gonna think this next beer that I have is worth much more. And I didn't realize this at the time when you were asking me to pick one of these beers. Mm-hmm. But this actually fits one of the categories that you were talking about earlier. Okay. One of the the lessons, which is, uh, it's Old Town Brewing, mm-hmm. uh, and their hazy IPA called Pillow Fist, 
which is a kick-ass name. Nice. Yeah, it's a great name. Uh, and I, I think these are, this is one of those breweries that is having a hard time breaking into consciousness here in, in Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, uh, the the 37th brewery people think of. Right. And when you have so many breweries, it's really hard to break in. And they haven't kind of put it in their head yet of, of a brewery. To, when they see the name, like, that's that's a brewery. I've, I've got to buy that beer. Right. So, yep. Um, so this is, you got to, you got to, we're going to try to promote risk taking here. Yeah. Take uh, some risks on Old Town. Take some risks. And also <laughs> We've mentioned free. Old Town a couple times in, in the recent pods because they had a little dispute with the city of Portland about their logo, which. And I got to do a collaboration beer with them and brewed with them. Not this one, though. No, not this oh, one. Let's do that. A, different, a different one. Nice. Yeah. It's yeah. a, uh, it is, it is actually a hazy IPA of sorts, but it's made with, uh, um, Saison yeast. An odd, by, an odd, an odd byproduct of that fight was probably the fact that their profile has been, has been raised in the city. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully they can ride that. I know that Adam Milne, the owner was really anxious about that. He did not want to go public and he didn't, he was feeling very much, uh, Oh my gosh. I'm not even, it's not even close to my nose in the aroma. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh my. That's like, um, that's like a fresh peach almost. Ooh, you tell me what you think that is. It wasn't peach at first. It was kind of more grapefruit, but now it's more peachy. I think it's got a lot of mosaic, uh, <laughs> which is not peachy to me. One of my desert island hops, remember? When you come over to my yeah, side it, of the island. It's really tropical. We'll have a nice of- caraway note in there. Maybe, oh, I think. That's, I think that. So That aroma is just amazing. We'll learn that it doesn't actually have mosaic, but I think it does. Mm. Ooh, that's nice because it's got a little more backbone than your kind of typical milkshake. That's the thing about the Northwest that we're seeing is we just can't resist putting a little bitterness in there to balance them out. I think mm-hmm. that's better. Uh, we tried that... Uh, Sierra Nevada Hazy IPA on mm-hmm. a recent pod, and it's yep. very soft. And I, I just wished it when it's you know when the early when you get it fresh. Yeah. And I just wish they had a little bit more structure. Yeah, and this one's got nice structure. It is this one. This one's a six point eight. Okay. Yeah, it's got a nice little bite to it. Yeah, it's interesting. The hazy IPAs um, people tend to by the way this make them our, strong. Our uh, our hazy meter is. Like an eight, maybe. Yeah, not, not the full milkshake, but um, definitely. Like, I you can't see me if you look through it. Yeah, you can't. There's not a whole lot of light rays that pass through it. But yeah, it's suitably hideous. Well done. That's what they like. Yeah. So uh, that beer is more valuable to us because it's free. So we're more inclined <laughs> to like it and more inclined to covet it. <laughs> All right. So there you go. That goes. That kind of goes against expectations. I'd pay for that too, by the way. <laughs> I, I know. So everybody should go check out some old. So why does that? Why is it against your expectations? Well, it seems like you would value something you paid for. You know, I just went out. I had to do all this work to get the money, and then I went out and bought this thing, and it's expensive, and it's you know, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna value this. I, I think you know. I think it it falls in that same that same sort of psychological insight we've learned about <clears throat> making things transactional. There's a famous case in which, uh, I think it's referenced in the, the Freakonomics book, if anyone's read that, where um, this daycare was having problems of parents showing up late, picking up their kids late after 6 o'clock when they were supposed to be closed. Hmm. And so they decided, well, we're going to solve this problem by 
charging a fine. So for every 15 minutes you're late, you know, it's, I don't know, 20 bucks or 30 bucks extra. And when they uh, started implementing the fine, suddenly uh, the uh, number of late parents skyrocketed. <laughs> because they, suddenly you they made could it, just pay for it. And yeah, because suddenly you just made it a transaction, right? Before right. it was a guilty conscience, and now you've just turned it into something that's a transaction. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think that's a little bit like once, once you own it, it's no longer a transaction. It's something that's yours and you covet. There's another case here that has gotten some researchers in trouble. Very similar, uh, I think, psychologically. Uh, did you hear the thing about the the researchers who who think that the the uh, the drug that you give to to revive people who have an uh, opi- opioid f- uh, overdose, mm-hmm. um, they think that it the presence of this drug uh, has increased overdoses, risk taking, yeah, risk taking, yeah, exactly. Uh. And when they posted that, uh, they just got this intense backlash from people because they didn't really? like that kind of that logic. They were they were down on that logic. Well, that's actually that's a that's an old classic economics tale, which is called moral hazard. So when you're protected, it's just the same exactly same idea that when you have car insurance, you drive more risky, or uh, if you have good health insurance, you can afford to you know I don't know go rock climbing or smoke cigarettes or other risky behaviors. So you think beer drinking will go up if we get our, our Waymo driverless cars? Yes. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a no-brainer. But uh, unfortunately, given the accident yesterday with the Uber driverless car, it, we might be a few more, few more years off. Because yeah. here's the thing. like we, un- we understand that self-driving cars might be 100 times more safe than, but we expect perfection from right. our robots. Like, right. Robots can't, can't be fallible. Humans can be fallible, but robots can't. All right, so there's another another uh, related concept called uh, the default option. Uh, uh, people like to have a, a fallback option. So this is kind of like the paradox of choice as well. Like uh, people, in, in, in the way that this shows up in marketing or in business is that is um, having a default option for individuals. Like if you don't choose, we'll just give you this. Okay. Right. And so that got me thinking. Uh, and people tend to be much much happier with that, and they value it a lot more um, than uh, than having to make a choice uh, right off the bat. And so this got me thinking about how you present your beers, and one of the idea of having this sort of standard house beer mm-hmm. that like you train your servers to always. Um, if people don't know, then just start them with this one. Like this this is our beer. This is the one we're known for. Um, and then uh, and then they can move on from there. Uh, not many places do that. You want to try to figure out what your customer likes and, and match it to them. But it's another idea. Uh, come up with a fairly, a fairly neutral standard, uh, crowd pleasing beer, and make that your your kind of fallback. Maybe even give it away for free. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, breweries are not going to be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, LCC probably wouldn't like it either. Yeah. So um, here's one that uh, that. Uh, we alluded to last time when we were talking about glitter beers, um, which is uh, what we call affect. And this is just kind of the, the overall kind of good or bad feeling you have about a product. And, and this is often talked about in terms of having things like preservatives, which you might, um, you might sort of rationally know uh, don't have any known health consequences, but you just associate bad feelings with them, like you prefer not to have preservatives around. And it's less about sort of the unknown risk and more just about sort of the the, the good or bad feeling you have about a, a, a product. Um, so, for example, uh, um, having a glitter in your beer just might make like... Uh, make you like the beer more or less just from the fact that it's that it's that it's in there 
Um, and so one of the things I think that, that uh, suggests is that um, you might want to be careful about uh, associating um, your beers with any kind of bad connotations like, I don't know, misogynistic labels or funky ingredients or... We had that conversation a while back about names and mm -hmm. some really off-putting names. So yeah, that was one of those. So that can really affect the value. So if people, if people start associating you with some of these negative uh, feelings, then these negative feelings can actually turn into sort of um, willingness to pay for your product. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That seems even rational. <laughs> so this one's going to be very familiar to anyone who's ever gone into a grocery store ever anywhere in the world, <laughs> uh, which is called uh, salience. And salience is a, is a general concept that really, that really uh, talks about sort of information that stands out, that tends to be given more weight. So there might be all kinds of information about, oh, I don't know, politics or something like that. But there's one little piece of in information that's been given, uh, that's been um, uh, sort of highlighted by news media. And so people will focus on that, like as that's the really important issue. Um, that, excuse me, also comes... Uh, out in, in marketing in the following way that people tend to give a lot more weight to things that are highlighted and so in in, uh, in beer this might be given an end cap on a on a, on a grocery aisle so given a, a special display on the end of a grocery aisle so end of grocery aisles is like super prime real estate because products really move off the end of and there's really nothing different they're the exact same product they have the same price as they are down the middle of the aisle but just the fact that they're there creates this information that sort of stands out they, this product just stands out because it's there and so people give it more weight in terms of their preference they're more likely to buy it just from the fact that it's 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 featured uh <laughs> yeah it's so common that it just is received wisdom but you're right it's kind of when you think about it, it's a little weird that they would sell more from there yeah and it's and it's uh what i'm trying to tie it into is the more general psychological concept that we just tend to we tend to give more weight to things that are sort of more um uh, uh, more novel or, or information that stands out, um, uh, even though it might not be more important, right, or more relevant. Do we think when we see those end caps? Do we think that um, they're more? Is it something to do with convenience and availability, or more specialness when we see that? That's just the thing. So I think convenience and availability would suggest a small uptick. But the dramatic uptick, I think, has more to do with the fact that you're receiving this information and suddenly you think, for example, let, let me give you a more specific way in which I think. So if you all of a sudden see uh, beer, and I'm going to use the beer that we're actually going to talk about because we found this on a special display in the, in the store, uh, is the Stormbreaker beer. So it's there on a special display, and you might all of a sudden, therefore, uh, place more value into that beer. Like, I think it's more likely to be a good beer, which is a lot different than just saying, oh, it's here, and I'll, because I don't have to walk down in the middle of the aisle, I'm going to grab it. It's that you actually attach a higher value to it <laughs> because it's new information to you all of a sudden there, and it's like, okay, well, this must be, this is something interesting, novel. It's got to be good. But so often it's just Budweiser. Yeah. Huh. So, so often. <laughs> uh, uh, sort of apropos of nothing, but I was in, I was in Target a few weeks ago, uh, and the uh, rep, one of one of the distributor reps was like trying to get a hold of the manager because he he'd been promised an end cap for his I can't remember what which beer in his portfolio it was, but he was like bound and determined that he was going to get that dang thing. Right, <laughs> he was really into it. Yeah, well, and and speaking of Target, it reminds me uh, Target uh, over Christmas stocked the beer bible, 
And they didn't put it with the other books. They put it on an end cap, right? Uh, I don't know if they put it on an end cap. I never actually saw the damn thing. Well, I looked for it a couple times, and I never found it. But I saw the end cap, which I'm sure it must be in in some of the stores because it had, like, the wine book and the book about cheese and, you know, just sort of these holiday books. And it yeah. was exactly that. It was an end cap on the end of a, of a row of, of books. I think it must have sold really well because I was looking at some sales figures, and it looked like I had a rock star Christmas. But so uh, yeah. it really, I think, I that, assume I think the it fact that it somehow. wasn't there was just the fact that it had sold out before all these other ones. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. All right. What so are they going to buy a wine book? Come on. So speaking of salience, we were in the store and they had a bunch of beers that were sort of out being uh, featured. And the one that uh, I decided to grab because uh, it's the thing, <laughs> it's the new category from the, from the, uh, uh, the Brew Association, uh, is Stormbreaker Brewing from Portland, Oregon. The, uh, I'm going to read the label. Hazy, so hot right now. Hazy, dot, 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 so hot right now. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, I get the so hot right now because it's a hazy IPA. And then they call it a New England style of pale, uh, pale ale. Oh, pale ale. Well, it's... Yeah. That's ale. cool. So this would this is going to go in, in, in the category... Uh, I actually looked at those, and they're just based on... on uh, Strength. There, everything else is identical. Yeah. So this is five point six. So but is that part of that category? Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a pale ale. That and that's. I think we really. So below six, between six and seven, and seven up. Is that? I don't know. Something, roughly. Yeah. Something like that. But I'm, I'm not sure why there is not more uh, hazy pale ales because. Uh, Ooh. It's such a. It's much more. Qua- it's a quaffable thing anyway, and then you know, like we were looking at the pillow fist, and it's six point eight percent, and then you think I yeah. can't drink very much of that. This uh, this smells South Pacific to me. Yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Little sweaty, so I think you're right. Maybe have some Nelsons in there. <laughs> no sweat. I don't know what are you talking about? <laughs> Musky. Mm. Ooh, that is nice because it's lighter. They don't seem to say what's on here. No. Come on, people. Uh, sorry, we sh- that's dead air, but I'm trying but, to read what the, what it says. Well, yeah, and I picked up the pillow fist and I was going to say, by the way, they say that Citra, Mosaic, and Amarillo. Aha! From the pillow fist, so you had that right. And since you didn't find it on that one, I'll look on this bottle because... Uh, oh, that's really nice. That's a really gentle, uh, approachable, zingy. Yeah, Stormbreaker has kind of become known for their hazies, haven't they? I don't know. Uh, Stormbreaker is uh, one of the... Uh, there, it's, it's another... We can fit it into that other category mm-hmm. of uh, breweries that I think people have a generally favorable opinion of but mm-hmm. haven't moved up into that, like, I see it, I buy it category. Uh, so Yeah, I haven't seen it much out on store shelves, so I'm not sure it's getting out that much, but I know... Yeah, I think... Little, um, more more in pubs and stuff. When their, I see their it, little I, tasting room, I think, is a pretty hot yeah. place to be. And and what I have uh, what I have heard of them has all been about hazy IPAs. They're both relatively in the same part of the town too. So mm. northeast Portland. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess actually North Portland uh, is Stormbreaker. I don't know. It's on Mississippi. So ah, whatever that is. That, I think is, it's that is really nice. It is really nice. That's a good one. Yeah. See, that's the and thing. It's, um, it's so hard. This is kind of off your topic, but it is really hard if you're a small brewery that doesn't have the, the, the notice. I guess it is on your topic to break through 
um, because people are not taking the gamble. Well, and it's so important that that's that was my end. That was going to be my wrap up, which is not it's not just end caps, but it's also shelf position, general positioning. It can matter. It can also matter how your price is positioned amongst other prices. So, mm-hmm. are you a relatively expensive beer relative to the beers just around you on the shelf, or are you relatively cheap beer? relative to the beers just around you on the shelf. All those things can make a big difference in terms and, of sales. And based on what you said and based on what we've seen, it seems like there's logic to be to being one of the cheaper beers or being one of the more expensive beers. Like there's you're playing on people's irrational or rational, I don't know, your, their behavior. They're, uh, you're, you're, you're playing a psychological experiment there. Yeah. I mean, it would be good to be an expensive beer amongst even more expensive beers, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so you're relatively cheap, but you're nice and expensive, meaning you must be good. Yeah. Okay, so I'm uh, I'm more or less done with the beer thing. The only other thing that uh, got me uh, amused was, and this has actually been a really old concept in economics, and we've tried hard to incorporate this into our models, but... Human beings are really bad at forecasting the future. Right. That uh, is totally true. And one of the interesting insights, though, that I've learned <clears throat> is that we tend to forecast linearly, even when things are nonlinear, in the following sense. Uh, compound interest is one of those things that human beings just don't get very well. Right. <laughs> so you understand that that grows exponentially if you leave money in the bank and don't touch it. But people still have this linear interpolation. Their heuristic is a linear interpolation. So it doesn't seem like it's very valuable. So (laughs) they underestimate how valuable it would be and they don't save. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Precisely right. And we also have this this tendency to really discount the future. So we make decisions today that we know we're going to regret later, (laughs) right? And then later we regret them. And we have this behavior, and it's a really common human behavior. Every time I have a third pint, I regret it. Well, yeah, that was my only, like, how do I bring this back to beer? And that's what got me thinking. Well, the, the, the... the effect of alcohol in your system can get nonlinear pretty quick. <laughs> and so we, t- we tend to have that third pint of hazy IPA when maybe we, we should. Yeah. Uh, that was really my only insight for that. <laughs> yeah. Every beer drinker in, the, in America who uh, listens to this podcast just nodded their head and said, yes, I understand that concept so, very well now. So we, um, there's two, there's been two ways, two sort of terms of art, uh, uh that we try to, um, lingo it up and one is uh time inconsistent preferences and the other is hyperbolic discounting both ways to sort of talk about preferences that don't seem to uh, the, the that kind of irrational that kind of relatively irrational behavior you guys could hire uh, a branding firm to come in and uh, spruce up your titles those oh we don't, should those you know, don't make any sense at yeah all. we actually this is a this is a point of we're getting off topic but this is a point of discussion in the economics department because we still have these terms like I teach a class well I teach a version of a class that is normally called uh, industrial organization okay which sounds really 50s to me it's like it's about <laughs> firms and, and, right. and yeah. how they make decisions and stuff industrial organization what kind of a crazy term is that but because that's what we called it in the 1950s we still do and I think you know this we're not doing a good job like selling these classes labor economics is another one labor is a catch-all and we do all kinds of interesting things talk about education and healthcare, and uh, all these public policy questions happen in labor we just say labor right like no student knows what that means right we just assume they do uh, anyway, that's and the they topic think you're a bunch of pinko commies, and they're like, I don't care about that. And if you want to know more about that, it's uh, it's called nomenclature in economics pod on uh, right. find on find on iTunes. <laughs> that will have a that will certainly be our most listened to ever. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, well, that's all I that's all I have uh, for my be- uh, behavioral beeronomics that was insights an, for tonight. That was incredibly interesting, and I'll tell you, there are people who uh, work at breweries and own breweries who probably had their ears perked up for a lot of that. that was nice good stuff. Good. Uh, we'll send free beer because I'll value it high. That's highly. right. Keep keep sending it to me because yeah. I'll value it high. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, do we have a mailbag tonight? We have one, uh, one mailbag. All right, uh, let's hear it. And it's really just a comment more than a uh, uh, a question. Um, it's a response to an answer you gave, and a and a and Uh-oh. a dissent. Yeah, uh, the last podcast, actually two podcasts ago, we uh, somebody asked a question about um, distribution mm-hmm. and free market. Uh, economy, uh, the free market e- economies, uh, in terms of um, the purchase of of uh, a small distributor by a larger distributor, and you gave an answer that neither of us is going to remember. So there's no point in trying to remember that. But Tobias Hahn from here in Portland, Oregon, we almost never get somebody from Portland hmm. emailing us, uh, wrote. Patrick was talking about the possibly warped incentives for a distributor of promoting one brewery over another, depending on when their contract runs out. However, distribution contracts do not expire. Basically, uh, from a brewery's point of view, a distributor, a distribution agreement is basically a marriage till death do you part. Um, On the other hand, a distributor has a much easier time divorcing if they want to. From the point of a small independent brewery, the distributors hold all their power. So I think this relates to that the 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 kind of uh free market economics well that, that's fascinating if true but that is true that is uh, that's totally true the, that the that distribution contact n- contracts never expire at, or are one-sided in that way well they're one-sided in the sense that uh distributors can afford to dump breweries that they don't like i think um, and i think they have to buy them out and, and but it's i think it's not if they're not doing very well it's it's not a, an expensive proposition um, whereas for a small brewery to get mm-hmm. out of a, a distributor contract, yeah, they are. Um, so you're saying it's functionally impossible, but not well, it's legally not, impossible. It's, it's not even functionally impossible. You just have to buy yourself out, but they can be very expensive. Yeah. Um, like but, even a small, you know, two thousand uh, barrel brewery will be tens of thousands of dollars. So what out. I presume you're saying is that. You know, like legally, there's nothing that prevents me from signing a two-year deal with a distributor, but no distributor is going to do that. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Although this is, and we we can continue to threaten to do a distribution pod. <laughs> yeah, <we're not>. uh, <laughs> but we just uh, like to tease it. So th- this is one it's of those be things really that, good when we do it. Yeah, we are. Uh, this is one of the biggest things that's that I think the the one of the most important things that's happening in beer right now is everybody's questioning these these long-term distribution deals, and there's a lot of talk. Of weakening them, there are uh, a number of states that are considering. Uh, yeah, it may take a legislative, seju- legislative solution to that's mandate right. limited contracts. Yeah, so that's all very Ooh, interesting. That might be a cool free market reform. It would be an interesting thing because the distributors argue that, and I think rightly, that they are the ones who have built up these brands. Sure, and make so, a big investment. Yeah, yeah. So they don't want they want they don't want to build up a brand, a brewery. <laughs> Have the brewery get very large and then lose the contract. But on the other hand, but it's just a new game. The new game you're playing. If you say, okay, now from now on, you can't have more than a two year contract. Then, yeah, then, I'm, then I'm just telling you. I, I'm not. Uh, I don't want to be perceived as making an argument about which who's right here. 
Just telling you what the distributor would say. <laughs> okay, Mr. Waffle. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't know who's right either. What all I'm saying is that that's one. That's one reality, and, and, and you buy it. But if you create a new game, a new reality that says it's a two-year deal, well, then distributors, uh, the value of, um, they'll be rewarded for their good service to their brands by brands re-upping. Yeah, I right? think that that makes sense to me. Huh. All right. So we're gonna do the pod. Yeah, we'll have to. Which means you're going to go do some legwork, buddy. <laughs> I got a real job. <laughs> Mr. Waffle do the legwork? We'll see about that. <laughs> All right. I guess that's... That's it. Is that it? No, it can't be it. That's. I think that's it. All right. We we were uh, efficient. Yeah. Well, that's that's as appropriate for it's our a, Beeronomics podcast. That's right. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Remember, you got to rate us on iTunes. That's right. Preferably high, but... <laughs> I guess that doesn't matter. I don't know. Yeah, no, it matters. It matters. Okay, it matters yeah. a lot. Rate, rate us high. Rate us high. Uh, and subscribe to us and tell your friends. That's right. Do subscribe. That's another one of those things. Subscriptions really help yeah. boost us. So if you're interested in uh, the the pod being popular and all that. Uh, but subscribe. more than anything else, let us know what you think. Uh, give us some feedback. Give us questions, comments, whatever it is. Absolutely. Uh, you can email us. Uh, Jeff at beervonablog.com is a really good way to get in touch. Even better, perhaps, because it's easy. It's a Beervana blog Facebook page, unless you, of course, are boycotting Facebook. Right. In which case, <laughs> just go back to that email. It works for directly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you can also message, message us at Beervana uh, at, for Jeff or at Beeronomics for me. That works. On on the tweeter? On the tweeter. Yeah. Is the tweeter compromised yet? Probably. but No, I don't think so. Okay. so the tweet- Well, I mean, just to the extent that there's Russian bots everywhere. but Yeah. You know, yeah. If you're a Russian bot, please don't tweet us. <laughs> but we, if you're a Russian, we don't listener, want your de- please do. We don't want your divisiveness. <laughs> That's yeah. right. If you're a Russian oligarch, you can uh, sponsor us. That's right. <laughs> uh, oh, we've gone down a dark path here. All right, I think we're basically done. We <laughs> find, find Jeff at the Birvana blog. Buy his books. Buy buy a few copies. Yeah, uh, send them. He'll he'll sign them and send them back. That's true. Oh, won't you? I will. I have done that, actually. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Uh, you can find him in Target. Actually, can you still do that? I don't just know. for the holidays. I think it was just for the All holidays. Right. All right. We better uh, cheers and get out of here. <laughs> That's right. Before you overpromise. <laughs> uh, lost track. Uh, I'm going to go for this one, which I think is the Stormbreaker. And I'll go for the Pillow Fist. So we'll have uh, uh, two hazies. Hazies. Harmony, har- harmony or hazies. All right. Saoji. All right. Cheers, Patrick.